Some historians travel far and wide to uncover the fascinating stories that our ancestors have left behind. But for author Richard Panchik, the fascinating stories he wanted to share weren't so far at all. A proud native of Elmhurst, Queens, Panchik had always been interested in the borough he called home. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. I talked with Richard about his book, Hidden History of Queens. Richard discovered many complex narratives that still run through the veins of his beloved borough. He shares that many authentic structures and locations are eager to share their stories if you're willing to take a deeper look. From rare new town Pippin Apples to old Revolutionary War buildings, we learn that Queens has a lot to reveal about the people who once inhabited New York City's largest borough. Richard, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So you are a native of Queens, right? That's right. Born and raised in Elmhurst. Tell us about Elmhurst. For those who've never been to Elmhurst, what kind of community is it? Well, Elmhurst is uh, typical of Queens in that it's uh, a community that's very old, um, originally called Newtown, founded in the 1600s, but over the years has changed dramatically from a farming community, quiet community, to one that saw some action in the Revolutionary War, to a place that was really populated by the turn of the 20th century and became, you know, so to speak, a suburb of Manhattan and then became a, a very bustling place and has changed a lot ethnically over the years. So it's, it's a very dynamic community, but there's a lot of history there for sure. Queens does indeed have a very, very rich Revolutionary War history, doesn't it? Queens doesn't, and a lot of people may not know that. Um, but there was a lot of activity in Queens because uh, Queens was, for the most part, loyalist. But there were um, patriots as well. So there was a lot of activity and occupation by the British and, and burning of places and rounding up of the patriots and counter-insurgencies counter and, and spies. And so there's a, a, quite a history. Why is it that there were so many loyalists in Queens? Um, it's really, um, you know, I don't really know the full answer, but there were pockets uh, throughout the city of loyalists and pockets of patriots. And what happened uh, in Queens was that, you know, there were um, American forces present that wound up taking for example, cattle, and pushing them out toward the east where it was more of a patriot stronghold. Um, and, you know, there were plenty of newspaper articles and stories about what happened with uh, patriots being rounded up by the loyalists. And it's an interesting, uh, that's another whole book, basically. <laughs> <laughs> How much of that Revolutionary War history is still visible in Queens? Well, there are places like, for example, the St. James Parish Hall in Elmhurst, which recently, just a few months ago, was designated as a New York City landmark. And that's an interesting story because years ago I had tried to get that nominated to become a landmark and was pushed off. And finally, recently, there was a, a groundswell of support for this building that dates to 1735 to become a landmark, and it did. Um, but that's one structure where, interestingly, um, you know, the British worshipped during the war when they occupied Newtown. So that's a visible piece of the history. And that's kind of cool. And it's interesting. In fact, future King uh, William IV of Britain was a soldier um, and he worshipped there. He was stationed here 
in New York, and he worshipped there. So that was kind of interesting, too. Now, that's a king. Let's talk about queens, specifically the name queens. How did queens acquire the name queens? Again, you know, you have kings and you have queens, counties, and queens was named after a queen of England, of course. And um, I'm surprised that the name still stands today, and kings, too. I mean, kings is known as Brooklyn, but... Mm -hmm. Queens isn't known as anything else. And it's interesting how some of these revolutionary uh, or pre-revolutionary era uh, terminology is PC even today. But I think we've forgiven the British now, <laughs> so we're good. But it's interesting to note, and there's plenty of street names in Queens that are Dutch era or British era. And some of them, if you look into the history, you'll find that these are British people uh, who were... Not patriots, but obviously Tories. And, but the names still stand, and it's part of our history, so we embrace it. Let's talk about street names for a moment. More specifically, though, the numbers attached to street names, because I find it very, very challenging to get around Queens, because you have avenues and streets and roads all with the same number. The problem in Queens is that, again, uh, before it became part of New York City, Queens was bunch of um, communities. And it extended all the way into Nassau County, today's Nassau County, before Nassau was separated. So you had Flushing and you had Newtown and you had Jamaica and all of these, Astoria, you know, all these places that were separate. And of course, everyone could have its own main street and have its own first street or whatever street names. And then uh, by the turn of the 20th century, when we consolidated New York City, it became really confusing to have all these different main streets and all these, you know, we had to think of a way to do something like in Manhattan where the streets were uniform. But unfortunately, it was too late to re, you know, remake new streets and, and create new infrastructure. They had to deal with what was there and the, the grids that were already there. So they tried to implement this system and go from, you know, west to east with the numbering and north to south and have roads and avenues in one direction and streets and drives. And there was, you know, there's a whole list of, but what happens is you wind up at the confluence of, you know, 85th and 85th and things like that. And it is confusing. And Queens has the highest numbered street in the city. It's 271st street in the Glen Oaks area. So that's 271st street. That's as far as it goes. That's the end of the line. But you can see how, you know, confusing it can be because in places where there are parks or highways, you have streets that get interrupted, but then they continue again on the other side, on the north side or in the east side. And it kind of picks up in an odd place. And you're like, wait, is this is 55th, but I thought I was on 55th back there. And now it's 55th. So it's very confusing, but you got to learn to love it, <laughs> embrace it. That's the thing, you know, and thank God for Google Maps and, <laughs> and, you know, all this navigational help we have now. Very, very, very true. Easier. Was Queens always a part of New York City? When New York City became New York City, was Queens always a borough, or was that added later? Well, you know, originally New York City meant Manhattan, and that was it. And it was only with the consolidation at the end of the 19th century that Queens became a part, officially, of New York City. And, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people who were not happy with that idea because they had their own identity. And interestingly though. You know how when you write out an envelope and you say Brooklyn, New York, but in Queens, you don't say Queens, you say Flushing or Elmhurst. Or, 
And somehow we've, I don't know how we've managed to retain that, but we did. And so there is, I think, well, you know, Brooklyn, you have your neighborhoods, but Queens, I think the identity is even more strong because you retain it in when you're addressing something. And so it's a borough, but I think it still has a strong sense of identity. And because it's such a huge borough with such a geographically diverse uh, stretch, it's, you know, as I write in the book, you know, parts of it are so far south, you wouldn't believe how far south and parts are so far north. And, you know, you have such a diverse from beaches to wetlands to hills and dales. And, you know, it's it's such a wide ranging area that is this borough, Queens. Speaking of beaches, you write about the Rockaways in the book. The Rockaways, a very interesting history there. The Rockaways have an interesting history and you know, I write about a part of the Rockaways that was actually a community that was abandoned. And if you go down to the Arvern area, you'll see these street signs and fire hydrants and remnants of roads. Um, But this community no longer exists and it's all overgrown and there's very little there, but it's kind of a scary, interesting area. Then you have the Rockaways proper and you have a lot of history there as well. Um, in fact, the first transatlantic flight wasn't uh, Lindbergh in 1927. It was a plane that took off from the Rockaways, and it was not a nonstop, but nonetheless, it made the trip in, I think it was 23 days overall with many stops, but two days and six hours and 43 minutes of flight time. It was a, a seaplane that took off from Rockaway Beach in 1919. So wow. that was... Queens is honored with the first transatlantic flight. Well, we're all familiar with LaGuardia. We're all familiar with JFK. But you write about other airports that many of us are not familiar with. Right. There were there were other airports. And, you know, as aviation took off, excuse the language, but <laughs> uh, there, you know, of course, the Nassau County um, had, was the cradle of aviation and had some of the earliest airports in the 1910s. And Queens followed suit. You know, there was a need because not everybody wanted to go out that far. So airports began to spring up in, again, mainly on the north or the south shores. But there was one in Jackson Heights area. Um, Flushing Airport was one of these early airports that was operating for a long time until it finally closed, I think, about 30 years, 30 or plus years ago. But a couple of the airports that existed, for example, um, Glenn Curtis Airport, which became North Beach, which became LaGuardia. And then there was Jamaica Sea Airport, which was subsumed by Idlewild, which became JFK. So there was a history there of these early airports. And, you know, there was competition. And by the time LaGuardia came around, it was supposed to be the be all and end all airport, you know, this and, and within a few years, it was already deemed as too small. And that's why we had JFK, what became JFK, built. And because really, to, and even today, we still complain about LaGuardia. But um, at the time, it was seen as this great big airport. But what happened really was with the increase in technology and in airplane technology and a number of passengers flying, it just really took off right after World War II. It was just a booming business for air. Um, air flights. You also write about another airport known as Holmes Airport. Right. And that was, you know, that the problem with airports in, in a city setting, and this is why LaGuardia and JFK are still there, 
is because they're up on the shore or down on the shore. But when you try to put an airport kind of more in the central area, what happens is uh, people complain that's noisy and that planes are flying too low. And that's what basically happened with Holmes Airport being where it was near Jackson Heights area. It's just, you know, by the time apartments were being built in the 30s and it was just becoming uh, hazardous and also a nuisance and with the competition from LaGuardia. So it it didn't survive. And um, but it's an interesting, you know, uh, site to think going back in time and standing there and looking at airplanes landing where there's homes and, and apartments around nearby. Why did buses surpass the trolley system that existed in Queens during the mid to late 19th century, early 20th century? I think trolleys are a good idea when you have a community that's relatively unchanging, like you have a a route like, let's say, Fifth Avenue or something that you know is always going to be that where people need to go. But what happens in Queens over the years is that things have changed and the centers of shopping and the centers where people live change. And a trolley system is just a little too static. Plus, um, when you have trolleys, it is a bit of a disruption to traffic. Um, Unlike how buses are, I think trolleys are more disruptive and can be problematic for roads that are very busy, like the ones in Queens. So that's part of why um, trolleys couldn't survive in Queens, and really in New York City, too. But in Queens, it was just changing too dramatically. Fun fact, Queens is home to the oldest and tallest tree in New York City. Yes, and um, my my journey to find this tree was an interesting one because from, you know, with all our technology today and, and all the research you can do online, it was still a challenge to find it, but it's in Alley Pond Park and it's actually in a valley in there. So it, it's deceiving that it doesn't look as tall as it is. But when you get down, if you actually go down to the bottom and you look up from there, you'll see that there's a whole bunch of tulip trees in that park, in that area, that are ancient, hundreds of years old. And this one is, you know, that we've deemed as the oldest and the tallest. Um, and but, how old is it estimated to be? Oh, I think it was 350 years old or something like that. Wow. Um, and you know, it's, it's hard to do it exactly unless you're going to take a tour of it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they wanted to Mm -hmm. do that. But, uh, you know, to think that it was there in the Dutch times is kind of interesting and cool. Um, but if any of those trees in that area, in that park, when you look up, you just, you can't see the top. They're so tall. And that's really one of the good things about Queens is that there are so many parks in Queens and some of them were preserved from the time before there was any settlement in the area. So you're really preserving, you know, a primordial forest. You're preserving what was there hundreds of years ago. You also say in the book that Queens is home to 14 of the tiniest parks in New York yeah, City. It's funny because some of these parks are, are pocket parks almost. They're, you know, you could put them in your pocket. They're little triangles or they're, you know, you, you almost don't know it's a park, but there's a sign with a leaf on it, New York City Parks Department, and there's a the name of it. And many of them, they're not all in Astoria, Long Island City, but there are many that are in that area. And, you know, and looking for for one or two of them and writing the book, 
I had it like, wait, wasn't it here? <laughs> I thought, and there it was, and I almost missed it, but because they're so small. But I think it's also a, another interesting way that the city has, and many of these parks date to around the 1910s or so. Uh, many of them are named after World War I heroes. But it's an interesting way that the city has preserved some of the um, greenery because, and again, it's what goes to what you said too with this, the streets and the confusion and the way some of the grids are not even and they're, they create these spaces that are not used, useful for anything else except for putting some trees in and calling it a park. Not many people would associate Queens with apples, but the borough once produced what was considered the finest apple grown in America. You're right about it. Yes. Um, this is one of my areas of interest because, again, it is originated in Elmhurst, which is my hometown. The new town, Pippin, was considered to be the finest apple, and for many reasons, including its taste, which was both sweet yet a little bit tart, and also, it kept for many months, up to nine months, it was a very good apple store. It was a late apple, so you could pick it in October and then store it all winter and, and eat it all winter. It was good for making pies or eating fresh. And Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson were all fans of this apple. In huh. fact, Benjamin Franklin introduced this to England, and it had became a different variety of that apple. Thomas Jefferson grew them on his plantation in a different variety of the Pippin was was uh, grown there. In the book, I have a picture of one of the last surviving Pippin trees in Newtown in, in Elmhurst. And what happened, of course, was as you developed the land, you know, these trees could no longer be uh, financially feasible to grow apples in Queens. But what happened was many of them moved up uh, up the Hudson Valley and are still grown there. And in fact, you can still get Newtown Pippins at, I believe, the Union Square Farmer's Market, some of the farmers who show up there in the fall have Newtown Pippins for mm. sale. So that's kind of a fun, and I've done it, I've tried it. I was going to say, when was the last time you had a Newtown Pippin? I had one a couple of years ago, and it was it was good. It's a good apple. And the the reason it's not as popular today is because it's a little bit lumpy looking and the color is uneven. It's not gl- gloriously uh, uniform and beautiful and shiny. But it's, it's an about apple. the taste. It's, yeah, it's about <laughs> the taste. Flushing, you tell us in the book, was the site of the country's first commercial plant nursery. Yes. Um, and the funny thing is that there is still a remnant of the early nurseries of Flushing in um, the park there. Up in Flushing, there's a park that has a grove of trees that were basically abandoned and left when the nursery closed. And that those trees are still there today, which is over 100 years later, 150 years. Some of them were just saplings then, but now they're fully grown. And um, again, remnants of these early history, historical moments. And that's really what the book is about. It's about hidden history to finding some of the, the remnants that maybe you pass by every day and you don't know that they're there. Or maybe they're not so visible and you have to kind of look hard to find them. Where did you look? What was the research like for you in doing this book? I tried to make it to every site that I talk about in person and look physically for these remains. I also went back to um, early newspapers because I think, you know, a lot of authors will go do their research by looking at books, which makes sense, right? But the books they're looking at are current books and 
the authors who wrote those books are also looking at current books. So it's kind of incestuous, and nobody's doing original research. So I decided if you if you go back, and when I went back in time to these newspaper reports, you get a different story. And this is the truth that comes out. And the further back you go, the closer to the time, the more you uncover. And that's how I uncovered the truth about Clement Clark Moore and the story of his famous Christmas poem, which was an interesting discovery, so to speak. It was the night before Christmas. What's the story there? Well, there's been a lot of misconception and a lot of uh, you know, legend about Clement Clark Moore. First of all, he was not born in Queens. Second, he didn't write the poem in Queens. However, he has a close association with Queens because the Moore family it was from Newtown and settled there in the 1600s. And the family lived there. In fact, Clement Clark Moore's father, and not a lot of people know this, was Bishop Benjamin Moore, famous in his own right, more famous than his son, perhaps, at the time, because he was a prominent Episcopal, and he was the one who gave the last rites to Alexander Hamilton, who was mortally wounded in the duel. So everyone assumed that the Moore family home was in a specific place that, and it stood until 1929 and was demolished. And there was a sign there and there was legend there. This is where the poem, but in fact, what I uncovered through newspapers was that there was, that was one branch of the family, but Benjamin Moore and Clement Clark Moore's family lived in a different house that was a few blocks away. And that house was demolished 50 years before the other one. Hmm. And so that would have been the house where Clement Clark Moore, as a boy, visited his grandparents and would have been inspired by what he saw. And in fact, the coincidence that was overwhelming to me was that that property where that house stood was where I was born, 8020 Broadway in Elmhurst. Really? So it was a, <laughs> it was a neat way to tie everything in and say, wow, it's connected. I, where I was crawling around as a baby was where Clement Clark Moore was visiting when he was a kid, too. Did you grow up interested in Queen's history, or did this all come to you later? I grew up interested in history and Queen's history, but it really came to me in college when I took a class on New York City history, and then I really started getting interested. And, you know, when I found out that where my elementary school stood was where the, the, the British soldiers camped out during the war, then I got even more interested and wanted to do more research. And even knowing what I knew... There was still plenty more to find. I could have gone on for many more pages, but uh, there was so much there, still there, that remains to be found and uncovered. You have a chapter in your book called Famous Folks. Who are among the most notable Queen's natives? Well, there are some that everybody knows, like Simon and Garfunkel, for example. Sure. And then there are others that I wasn't even aware of. I didn't know that James Brown lived in Queen's. And Ella Fitzgerald, Joe Lewis, um, they all lived in a community called Addisley Park, which has its own story in the book because it was famously a very whites-only place that suddenly became a haven for jazz musicians and rock musicians and, and black artists. And um, there was some civil action. There was some legal action about keeping them out. But, you know, in the end, uh, it became a 90% black community. And many of the most famous jazz musicians of the time wound up living there. And it's an interesting walk. If you walk through and you have kind of a listing of who lived where, you can see the houses, and it's an interesting walk through. What would you say is the most architecturally stunning building in Queens? That's still standing. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, 
I was just in Flushing Meadows Park the other day and looking at the New York State Pavilion. And, you know, it's not exactly a building like you would think, normal building, but it's, it's, a, it's a remnant of quite an astounding accomplishment, this World Fair in 1964. And the fact that it's kind of decaying, it makes for a dramatic, when you get up close to it, it's a dramatic building with a really futuristic look to it. And I, I was always impressed by that building. Just, you know, when you drive on the highway, you pass it by all the time, the, the two structures. But seeing it up close is, is really an impressive sight. And that's, to me, that's one of the architectural gems. And I hope it's preserved and, and doesn't uh, get demolished. You give a fair amount of attention to the history of the World's Fairs in Queens over the years. Yeah, because I think it's, again, uh, so many people who are still alive can remember even the 39 fair visiting as a kid. And of course, the 64 fair, there was so much there that's not hidden history, but what's interesting now is going to the park now and finding what's left. And there, there are some remnants of 39, but not very many. And there are remnants of 64 that are kind of hidden like water fountains that date back to that time, the pathways, the, the other sculptures and, those are interesting in, in themselves, but the fact that Flushing Meadow was a garbage dump before it became the park is interesting. And uh, if you go and you, you're you standing by some of these big trees with uh, old trees that date to that the, the first World's Fair, you'll find little pieces of ceramic that are actually remnants of this garbage dump that was in operation for a while in the early 20th century, which is hidden history before the park, before the uh, park or the World's Fair. So that's interesting. But one of the most fascinating things to me was that how in both cases you have this amazing infrastructure, these amazing buildings, and after the fair, demolished, destroyed, gone as if they never existed. Mm. The vast majority of these buildings just taken apart, and they're gone forever. So... That in itself is, is interesting to think think of that. What kind of an impact did the Industrial Revolution have on Queens? How much did that change the nature of the borough? It, I think it really changed the nature of the borough a lot because you really did have a farming community in throughout Queens. It was a lot of, of course, there were your villages and your, your town centers like Jamaica and Flushing. But even Jamaica, for example, you know, Newtown, your village center was very tight and then immediately surrounding it, there were farms. But once you had the industrial, you know, you had the subway come in in the early 20th century. You had bridges built between Manhattan and Queens. You had the railroad and the tunnel built. So now you had people who were actually able easily to go in to the city. And when you started getting industry, um, there were places that were seen as really ideal for having this industry. And sadly, we're still dealing with the, the, the ramifications of that, like Long Island City, the industrial and, and polluting Newtown Creek. These are great places because you need water to run these factories. But at the same time, you're polluting the, the water and, and it's, you know, became to the point where it was toxic, absolutely toxic. And the factories, you know, instead of having like many cities today will use their waterfronts because we're enlightened now, but back then the waterfront was seen as being, hey, let's build a factory here. The book wraps up with a look at some of the cemeteries in Queens, including Prospect Cemetery, which is the borough's oldest cemetery. Prospect is an interesting one 
because again, it's, well, it's not hidden, it's there in plain sight, but it was very neglected for so long. And even today, if you go, you may catch it when it's got, you know, waist high uh, grass growing. And this cemetery dates back to the 1600s and has a lot of the early um, Central Queens settlers buried there. And that's a history lesson in itself, just looking at the names on the tombstones. But it's an interesting place to go. Cemeteries are interesting in Queens because some of them are private family cemeteries, like the Lawrence Cemetery, for example, I write about with its caretaker who lives on the on the property. Um, and other ones like the Pullis Cemetery, which is in Juniper Valley Park. It's you're, you're in the park and suddenly there's a fenced off area with graves. But, you know, cemeteries are... You, you, the funny thing is that all these buildings that have gone by the wayside over the years, these historical structures that are no longer exist, yet cemeteries are most likely to survive because they're cemeteries. Mm -hmm. And so you have some of the most historical and oldest places in Queens are its cemeteries that still survive today. And maybe they're not the best taken care of, you know, they're not um, well kept or they're not visible, but they are there. And the property they're on is valuable, but the cemeteries are still there. If you had to describe Queens in one sentence, what would you say? A tremendously diverse place with a tremendously fascinating and deep history. Well, the book includes a lot of that history. It's called Hidden History of Queens. Richard, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me, George. Richard Panchik has published a total of 33 books, including nine titles on New York City. Again, his latest is Hidden History of Queens. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. My thanks to producer Fiona Shea. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>